Hello, my name is Tom Boone. And I'm Joanna Bailey. Welcome to the Simple Flying Podcast, where we'll give you the lowdown on the latest news from the world of commercial aviation. Now, let's get on with the show. Coming up in today's show, Virgin Australia enters voluntary administration. What does this mean for travellers and for Australian aviation in general? Airlines are preparing for a return to service with in-flight social distancing measures, but will they actually work? I'm going to discuss Lufthansa's mammoth repatriation efforts, two British Airways incidents that happened last week, and a huge decline of passenger traffic at European airports. So, let's get on with the show. For our first topic today, I'm delighted to welcome our reporter from Down Under, Andrew Curran, to the podcast. Based in Australia, Andrew's a long-time simple flying journalist and knows more about Australian aviation than most airline CEOs. He's agreed to come on to give us the lowdown on what's going on with Virgin Australia. Andrew, welcome to the show. Hi, Joe. Hi, Tom. Hey. Thanks very much for joining us. So um, the big news this week certainly appears it's going to be all about Virgin Australia. So uh, as we know, a few weeks ago, they requested a a bailout from the government to the tune of around $890 million, which they clearly didn't get. Um, And last week, a trading halt was placed on the Australian Stock Exchange. So it appears that nobody's coming to the rescue and that today they are entering um, voluntary administration, today being Monday, listeners. So maybe this story's evolved a bit since then, but we'll update you as best we can. Andrew, what do you feel went wrong for Virgin Australia? Well, really, where do I start? Um, They're a good airline from a passenger's perspective. Um, They've always been good to fly on. Um, They've been around for about 20 years, and they started up with a low-cost airline called Virgin Blue in uh, 2000. And that was run by a man called Brett Godfrey. And he, in the 1990s, worked for Richard Branson at Virgin Atlantic. So that's where the whole Virgin brand came to Australia via that. Um, He was was CEO until around 2010. uh, And then there was a changing of the guard. Now, there's a backstory here, which I won't really go into, but essentially the person that lost out um, against Alan Joyce at Qantas for the top job, his name was John Borghetti. He went over to Virgin Australia around 2010. And what he decided to do was to take Virgin Australia away from its low-cost routes towards the full-service airline model. And in doing that, well, he made it a nicer airline to fly on, but in doing that, he added a whole degree of complexity and cost to the low-cost airline model. So they've gone from having uh, just a 737 fleet to having four or five different types of aircraft and all the all the costs that incurs. Um, they've upgraded the terminals, the lounges. They've introduced a business class, and it was a very nice business class. That you know, like um, it's one thing I'm sorely going to miss um, the Virgin class. Um, but all that costs money. And they segued from being a purely domestic airline. They want to be an international airline, um, which I it's always been a bit of a vanity thing, but you know, most airlines like to have, you know, a few shiny international routes. Um, 
they've generally been loss making. They've had a lot of troubles with them. The exception to that rule is uh, the Pacific runs across to Los Angeles. They've always done fairly well. Um, everything else has struggled. They've started a low cost airline called Tiger Air. And that's always struggled. So there's been a number of decisions in the last 10 years that have cost uh, Virgin Strait a lot of money and built in inefficiencies into the airline. And that's just come to catch up with it. Um, basically, their expenses exceeded their revenues. They've been losing money. They've made haven't made money since they haven't made a profit since 2012. Last year, they lost around 220 US mil. 220 million US dollars. Um, wow. Yeah. And that was better than the year before. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Um, it's, and so it, it went into the uh, coronavirus crisis, travel downturn, however you want to say it. It went into that with a lot of structural problems and a cash flow problem already. So what's happened in the last couple of months, like with a lot of airlines elsewhere, has basically brought the problems to a head. Yeah. So kind of, um, it's like Flybe, it's um, coronavirus has been the final nail in the coffin, but they were already struggling. um, I mean, um, I know a little bit about Flybe. Um, I've done a little bit of work on them. And again, yeah, I, I think from the, over the last decade, they've tried different expansion plans and different strategies, uh, and none of them have really taken off. And mm. they, in the end, there's just, you know, just the little things just pushed it over the cliff. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's very much with the way coronavirus is affecting the human population. It's those with the underlying health conditions that are worst affected. Well, yeah, and I think it's that, the, that, the airlines with the underlying financial issues that are being uh, hammered the hardest. So Virgin Australia had quite a lot of investors, didn't it? It was uh, part owned by Etihad, um, HNA, Nashan, Singapore Airlines. None of these organisations came forward to help. Why do you think they didn't get the bailout they needed? It had a complex ownership structure. Although it was publicly listed on uh, the Australian Stock Exchange and you could buy shares or stock as much as you can in any public company, about 90% of those shares were tied up in five owners. Um, now, roughly give or take a percentage point on either side, Singapore Airlines, HNA, Etihad and Nashan, which is a Chinese conglomerate, owned about 10 each. Richard Branson's Virgin Group owned 10%. So that takes their stake to 90%. Um, and the remaining 10% was in short, you know, uh, owned by small stockholders. I could buy some shares. Um, if I wanted to lose my money, I suppose. Um, um, so that complicated things. And when it came, you referred earlier to uh, the failed government bailout. Um, a few weeks ago, they Virgin Australia asked the Australian government, well, they, they, they called it a loan. Um, they, they asked for 1.4 billion Australian dollars, which is roughly eight, 890 US million dollars um, alone and they said well if we don't repay you back you can take equity in the airline and well that that raised problems quite a few problems one um the australian government really doesn't want to own an airline um they've been there done that before and like most western contemporary governments 
they're pro-free market and they're not interested in nationalising companies. Um, and also the uh, high levels of foreign ownership added a degree of complexity. Um, there was a view, whether it's fair or unfair, because all these owners were struggling themselves, that um, airlines like Etihad and H&A and They've all got rich backers, well, allegedly rich backers, and um, they were the people the airline should be approaching uh, for funding. Um, when push came to shove, um, none of them were prepared to uh, fund the airline. They've all reached into their pockets before to bail Virgin Australia out before, um, most recently a few years ago. Um, and I think they've just run out of patience and yeah. <laughs> again their own problems at home even singapore airlines which everybody said well you know singapore airlines has been bailed out by their local government um they had some enormous about like 15 million 15 billion us wow. but, um they have their own problems and they've got to get through 2020 themselves and, absolutely um, and I think it speaks volumes about the financial health of the airline overall, that nobody would step up and bail them out. You know, nobody saw a future for Virgin Australia. And that's a bit sad, really. It is. And uh, the other thing that needs to be taken into account was they have a high degree of debt, about three and a half billion US. And so wow. if Singapore Airlines or anybody came in um, and bailed them out, they would be left carrying that debt. And, you know, who 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 wants to pick up three and a half billion in debt? Yeah, <laughs> nobody. <laughs> Even on a good day, you know. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And given the current climate, not at all. So yeah. the news we've had today is that Virgin Australia is entering voluntary administration. I'm not sure if that's even officially confirmed yet. I think well, um, maybe we're still yet. waiting on the actual announcement, but it's almost 99% definite. So uh, what happens next, Andrew? Where are we going from here with Virgin? So we are expecting the official announcement tomorrow morning, um, Australia time, which makes it Tuesday morning. Um, it's uh, around 8.30 p.m. on Monday evening now, so we're talking the next 12 or 13 hours. Yeah. Um, their, shit, their stock has been in a trading halt for the last week. That, that halt is being lifted tomorrow morning, and it logically, when that occurs, an announcement would be made. They're obliged by law to uh, formally notify the Australian Stock Exchange and a formal notice will be posted. And when that's happened, that's the official notification. Now, um, there's a bit of a media pile on this afternoon and this evening, but, and in some, in some sense it's kind of an echo chamber, but the, the informed, you know, the, the reliable informed media, everybody's calling the official announcement for tomorrow morning on Tuesday yeah. morning. Sure. And will they look for a buyer now? Um, I did see something about private equity firms potentially well, queuing up so to buy gonna, them out. What's going to happen is it will go into receivership or administration and the airline everybody is expecting to just keep running along as it is uh, for a little while while the receiver sorts out what's going to happen. Now, there's been speculation for weeks about uh private equity funds stepping in to take it over. Um, what they wanted to do is wait for the airline to come into receivership because when that happens, that means a lot of the existing debts, the unsecured debt is basically wiped. Um, a lot of the secured debt gets discounted. So the, that original debt I was talking about, the $3.5 US, um, 
it doesn't all get white, but it gets substantially reduced. So then you've got a new airline or the new structure of an airline, which a lot with a lot less debt, which makes it much more appealing to new owners. Now this afternoon we're hearing um, that there's been a bid by a uh, by a private equity fund um, in conjunction with an international airline outside of Australia, which. Um, as yet is unidentified, that's, that's led to an awful lot of speculation. Um, I sort of don't really want to get into who that might be because, right. <laughs> uh, well, I don't think it's useful and I'll probably end up with egg on my face. Um, <laughs> so I think we'll find out that in the next couple of days. That looks like a reasonably likely scenario. It, okay. That is correct. It will be interesting to see which airline it is. Absolutely. Yeah, it would be great to see uh, see them taken on by a big player. So what do you think this means for the future of, you know, Australian aviation in general? I mean, now there's just a, a, a monopoly, really, isn't there, from well, Qantas? Well, yes, I don't think a, a monopoly will last for long. Um, nobody wants it, including the Australian, including the Australian government. Um, the way this country set up from a geographic perspective it's you know the size of the united states with about five or six big cities spread everywhere sort of like new york miami houston la chicago so um although there may only be 26 million people in australia we rely on air travel to get around and Mm -hmm. we fly a lot so there's a demand for two airlines and um two well-run well-managed airlines have always been sustainable. So what will happen is something will come to fill the vacuum. Um, the, the general thinking is that um, the Virgin Australia aircraft and most of their employees and a lot of the infrastructure will sort of be bought and will form a new airline. Um, that's not necessarily going to happen overnight. Sure. Um, but that's, that's, that's what I think the likely outcome is. I, I think the scenario that Australia will be left with, with just one domestic airline um, is is, in, is not going to happen, certainly yeah. not over a longer term. Well, that would be a bit of a disaster if it did, so I can't see that being allowed to happen. But uh, fingers crossed your prediction is right, and certainly for the you know 10,000 direct employees and I believe about 6,000 other workers that were supported by Virgin Australia, I'm sure they're absolutely hoping that, uh, that that is correct as well. So all of our thoughts are certainly with the guys at uh, Virgin Australia and everyone affected by the, the shutdown of the airline. But hopefully something else can get, to, get put into place by the time the demand returns. So, Tom, did you have did you have an update on Lufthansa for us? Uh, yeah, so I've got another Lufthansa update um, because it, <laughs> your it favourite seems, airline. Well, yeah, I mean, like we have been doing a lot of Lufthansa and BA, but um, <laughs> the, these airlines, I feel, have been the ones that have really been pushing out a lot of news recently. Yeah. Um, whether intentional or not, as we'll find out later. Um, <laughs> but I wanted to start just updating on Lufthansa um, because um, obviously there's been tons and tons of stranded passengers um, all around the world when flights have been cancelled and um, travel bans have come into place. And um, a lot of airlines have been operating um, repatriation flights, but they haven't really made a big song and dance of it. Um 
you know, like BA's been doing them, uh, everyone's been doing them, but they, you don't really know where they've been in, uh, other than the sort of exceptional ones that we've previously discussed. Yeah, on the you kind of hear the headline ones, don't you, where yeah. they've gone halfway around the world, but uh, I'm sure an awful lot is happening that we don't hear so much about. Yeah. Um, so Lufthansa itself has actually repatriated almost 90,000 passengers. And they've come from over 100 different countries. Um, and of course, this isn't just Lufthansa. It's across the whole Lufthansa group. So that includes Lufthansa, obviously, Eurowings, Swiss, Edelweiss, Austrian, Brussels, and Air Dolomiti. Um, and a couple of the sort of interesting repatriation flights um, saw uh, five Lufthansa A380s go to New Zealand, which definitely is the first time that um, the Lufthansa A380 has been to New Zealand because this is the first time that the airline's flown to New Zealand for 20 years. Um, yes, Tom, I, I, I spoke to um, Christchurch Airport about that, where they oh, yeah. had a number of Lufthansa 747s and A380s on the tarmac there, and it was a big deal. And, yeah. um, I made the comment, well, you know, how can there be so many Germans in New Zealand? But yeah. apparently there's about 15,000 of them there. They all go there. They're young you know, the backpackers and all that go there to work. So, yeah, I mean, like, it's definitely, I was surprised with how many Germans are there as well. Um, and, like, while there's been this good news about Lufthansa's been repatriating passengers, we also got a bit of sad Lufthansa news um, last week in that they're sending the entire fleet of A340-600s to Terrell um, in Spain for long-term storage. And... Terrell is known as a sort of aviation graveyard. Um, they've got um, a number of BA-747s have been sent there for long storage as well. Um, and what we know is that at least uh, seven of these 17 aircraft will never fly for Lufthansa again. Um, if any do return, that won't be for at least a year to a year and a half. Um, so they'll have a lot of time to think about their future sat in the sun. But um, I do kind of worry that um, with the direction that Lufthansa is going in, because it will also be receiving the new 777X at some point, um, I do worry that this is the end of the Lufthansa A340-600, which is a shame because I was keen to try out the cargo tech toilets. <laughs> is that on all of them then? Uh, yeah, it's all of the 340-600s have the lower uh, cargo. Oh, the downstairs ones. Yes. Yes. Oh, I've never tried that. That's a shame. I'd have mm. liked to have given that a go too. Yeah, I'm a bit annoyed now that I didn't take the um, short domestic uh, European hops that they were doing with the 34600 last summer now. <laughs> shame, shame. Mm. Well, maybe we'll see some back. You never know. Yeah. Um, so are they, are they the only airline with downstairs toilets that you know of? Um, it's the only one I know off the top of my head, but um, I mean, I don't want to say for definite that they are because I know that there'll be someone who someone. knows that they aren't. <laughs> it's um, an unusual feature and one that would yeah. be cool to try out. So, uh, yeah, hmm. maybe there is another. We'll do some investigations, eh, Tom? Yeah. In other news, um, we've been seeing some airlines making preparations to go back to work or some of the airlines that are already at work. Um, are changing the way that our flights are happening. Now, social distancing is becoming a, 
a usual everyday occurrence to us in our daily lives. I mean, uh, anybody who's in a country with lockdown now knows how to queue at a supermarket two metres away from everyone else and uh, how to go round in a one-way system so you don't accidentally pass somebody in the aisles. It's becoming a, a way of life, a norm, if you like. Um, so obviously that notion of social distancing is thought to be something that needs to be carried forward into other areas of our lives so that we can make a restart and, and get back to life a bit more as normal. Um, and airlines are no exception. So, so some airlines are looking to implement social distancing by blocking out the middle seat, so the middle seat of three. Um, and this means you'd only have obviously the window or the aisle seat to choose from. We're, we're obviously looking at narrowbody aircraft here in particular um, because there aren't that many international flights happening. But this is a design to reduce the amount of contact. And we've seen this. Um, Delta is now doing it on all flights. American Airlines is doing it on all flights. EasyJet has said that it will also adopt this plan when it returns to operations. And uh, SpiceJet in India is also implementing it on all its flights right now. And SpiceJet actually um, gave us a bit more of an in-depth look at how social distancing uh, while you're traveling would actually look. And it's not just on the plane. So they're also implementing measures at the airport. Um, for example, tape on the floors, like we've all seen at the supermarket. Um, and there's also um, things to separate queues. There'll be X's on the bus seats so that people can't sit next to each other on the, the buses that take you out to the plane. Um, even the stairs on and off the aircraft will have illuminated steps so you know which one you can stand on and still maintain a safe distance um, and there's been obviously additional training for staff as well um, now someone doesn't like this idea and, and I'm sure we could all guess who that might be probably the most outspoken person in the entire aviation industry uh, Mr Michael O'Leary says that this is absolute nonsense and he argues that such measures are completely ineffective um, you know and that there will be no benefit whatsoever I mean in some ways I'm sure he's just looking at one third of his fair profits going down the toilet but he makes a good point you know the the distance between an aisle seat and a window seat it's nowhere near two meters is it and so is I this mean You've also got the problem that if even if you block out all of the middle seats, um, you're still the person behind you or in front of you can sneeze and that can go in the air and around you. Like Yeah, and they can't be more than a couple of feet away, right? Yeah, yeah for sure. So I do think he's got a point. And he's also arguing that the, the pinch points involved in travel in general are going to be impossible to, to manage. So, I, you know, again, I, I see SpiceJet are doing various things at the airport to try and minimize that contact. But, you know, you've got to ask, there's going to be other places where people do pass within two meters of each other. And certainly on the plane itself, you know, it would be, I guess they'd have to just sell all aisle seats, all uh, window seats to make that two meter distance anything like effective. Um, so I don't know if we'll see this roll out. Um, what O'Leary says is that we should actually be following Asia um, and what we've seen with the return of airlines in Asia is that it's now becoming mandatory for everyone to wear face masks. Um, the argument against face masks is that they don't actually protect you from contracting coronavirus and that also somehow it makes you touch your face more often, which can obviously increase your exposure. But I'm not sure how much I believe that second point. But the, the idea is that you won't infect other people and it requires people to be kind of selfless, you know, because they know there's no benefit to themselves in wearing a face mask. It's just a, a level of discomfort um, while 
you know, the way we need to think is we need to protect everyone around us and then they'll protect us back. Um, and I think this has been part of a marketing campaign in Korea is I protect you, you protect me. So it's interesting, but I don't think people, particularly in Western Europe, will start en masse wearing face masks on flights unless they're absolutely told to. Um, I mean, what do you think, Tom? Is social distancing achievable on flights or well, a face mask is a better idea? I mean, in the short term, definitely it is achievable because the number of people flying right now is very low. Um, I mean, a lot of the airlines that have come up with these social distancing policies were already doing this anyway because the planes were empty. So in the short yeah. term, it's definitely achievable. But um, I think in the long term, I can't see, especially with the low costs like Ryanair and EasyJet, it would just push the cost of the flight up far too much. Um, it would. And the it tickets would completely would go up eat away their profits. Yeah, um, That would just destroy their competitivity with full service carriers. Well, it would. It would make the low cost model impossible. Mm. Um, I mean, it's interesting what you're saying about the low load factors right now, because uh, just this morning we reported a story about Air France flying a, an A318 baby bus between Paris and Marseille. Um, it's obviously the smallest Airbus in the fleet. Um, and up until uh, Sunday, it had been sold. It was just 50% load factor. So it was really easy to keep people separate. But for some reason, this past Sunday, it was almost completely fully sold. So everybody got on and everybody was sat in a row of three right next to somebody else. And, uh, you know, they've come under a lot of fire for that. People saying that they should have used a bigger plane. But uh, this is the reality is that the air airlines are going to want to sell all their seats. Well, I mean, the other thing with what you've just said as well is, um, I know, um, I think one of the senior management at Air New Zealand has been tweeting a lot about um, their flights and they, they, they might be selling out these aircraft, but only a small portion of them, uh, passengers, are showing up for the flights and they have no clue uh -huh. um, whether like 100% of the people are going to turn up or on one of their flights, no one turned up. Oh, gosh. <laughs> but then they still had to operate it because they didn't know if people were going to turn up at the other end. Yeah, sure. So, it's a really sticky situation. Yeah. Um, I know Qantas came under some fire for uh, not implementing social distancing. Andrew, do you remember that? They did. We did a story last week uh, based on a tweet posted by a passenger on a flight from Townsville to Brisbane. Now, interestingly enough, um, that tweet uh, has got a bit of traction. Um, and as a result, Qantas in the last day or so have introduced social distancing, keeping the middle seat free. Uh -huh. um, until then, they hadn't been doing it. They made the point that most flights weren't that full, so it wasn't, wasn't necessary, but you got the occasional flight that was full. Um, um, and, and in this case, with this unhappy passenger, um, it was just his bad luck to be on a full flight, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. It's a tricky one, and I think it requires a lot of thought. But uh, maybe the face masks can give us some hope for the future if uh, governments are prepared to take action. Um, Tom, do you want to tell us about the passenger traffic at the moment? Because uh, we're not seeing an awful lot of flights in the skies. Is there anyone still travelling? Um, so, yeah, I wanted to chat about this quickly because... Um, I've been eagerly waiting for the CAA and the German Airport Association to release their uh, monthly passenger statistics, but they've held off for that for March so far. However, individually, Heathrow Airport and Frankfurt have released their figures for passenger traffic. And I think it's really interesting because both of them 
um, show a huge dive in the number of passengers um, that they've seen compared to normal. Um, so, for example, in March of 2019, uh, Heathrow carried some 6.5 million passengers. Um, and that's dropped by over half now to just above 3 million passengers. And it's really the same story um, as far as Frankfurt's concerned. Um, in fact, if you put the numbers onto a graph, um, the drop in passengers between um, February and March for Heathrow and Frankfurt is almost identical. Um, and I mean, in a large way, that's because a lot of flights aren't operating, but also a lot of the flights that are operating are um, empty because, for example, Lufthansa at the moment is still flying to Heathrow every day, but um, I could fly on that. But what's the point? Because I arrive in the UK and I can't do anything. So it's really only open for those who really need to travel. And we're getting to the point now where the majority of those who really need to travel have now finished that travel. They've got um, where they need to be and yeah. they're going home, staying home, as we're all being told to do. Yeah, exactly. And um, what I did find interesting, though, was um, Heathrow in March saw a decline in cargo, um, roughly about or just over, just under half um, of its cargo um, for the previous year. And um, the airline, the airport said that this was due to, um, because obviously passenger aircraft carry a lot of um, cargo in their bellies whilst they're operating passenger flights. And when these flights aren't operating, they also can't carry the cargo. So this is what um, Heathrow used to sort of justify the drop of cargo. Although it is interesting that they still have, um, they're having more dedicated cargo flights than usual because typically they handle 47 cargo flights a month a week sorry and uh, last month they had 38 in one day wow um, <laughs> that's a big uptick isn't it yeah it is um but it's interesting because frankfurt seems to have had the opposite effect and um while cargo is still significantly lower than what it was last year um, at the same time, it has increased from February to March. Um, and I think this is partly because um, Frankfurt is a much bigger cargo hub than um, Heathrow. I mean, I think a lot of um, cargo for London actually goes through Stansted instead. Um, right, so, yeah. Um, but I mean, I just look out my window and so many of the flights now are cargo 747s or even MD-11s going here and there. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I read something the other day that I think it's a really high percentage, like 91% of the UK's imported goods hmm. used to, or they would typically arrive in the bellies of passenger planes. Yeah. So, you know, that really highlights the huge deficit with all the passenger planes not flying. Well, We're going to need mean, all these cargo carriers. So. Yeah, I mean, um, we discussed it briefly last uh, week, and some airlines have even put their passenger aircraft to cargo use. I mean, uh, BA, the last week we talked about, had operated that flight, I think, to London, Zurich, Frankfurt, London, um, with a 787. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's great to see. It's a shame mm. about the passenger traffic, of course, but uh, it's good that there's airlines willing to still keep our, our economies ticking over and food in our bellies, to be yeah. frank. So, uh, British Airways news, Tom? Yeah, so I, again, wanted to update on British Airways. I know we talked like about it last week. Like you do every week. week. Well, no, I, I know we talked about it last week, but there have actually been some really interesting stories from the airline this week. Um, the first one happened last Tuesday, I believe. Um, 
And it's not British Airways' fault at all, but um, one of their A350s was in Dubai. Uh, I believe that was doing a cargo flight, but I haven't seen um, any confirmation of that. And as it was being pushed back, it um, got a bit too friendly with an Emirates 777 um, and both of their horizontal stabilizers. Um, became one. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. Um, that sounds like an expensive mistake. <laughs> yeah, I think it is. Um, I mean, obviously, it will be covered by someone's insurance. I'm not sure whether it's uh, like the airport's insurance or the airline's. Um, I think that's sort of minor details. But it's interesting because um, it does make you wonder how soon it will get fixed because um, clearly it's going to be a bit more difficult to get parts to... Um, the destination maybe with um, flights grounded and also usually if this happens you're suddenly left without the capacity of an aircraft um, which leads to cancelled flights however at the moment there's an overcapacity of aircraft so yes they've got a few spares they can bring in (laughs) Um, so I'm looking forward to sort of seeing a happy ending to that one soon but we're not quite sure when And then just a day later, um, we had another one, um, which was an A380 in uh, Châteauroux in France. And that wasn't any... Beautiful accent, Tom. Thank you. (laughs) I've been practicing that all day. Um, So that one itself wasn't actually um, damaged to an aircraft, but instead the aircraft um, damaged the taxiway. It went slightly over the... Um, the line which the aircraft should usually be on, especially for such a heavy aircraft. And um, it basically just dug a channel in um, the taxiway, narrowly avoiding some of the lights. Um, (laughs) But we spoke to the airport and they confirmed that that was uh, due to a marshaller making a mistake. Um, Mm. So that's a bit bit of a... um, annoyance but they said um that they're going to replace uh, repair the taxiway this week so there's not as major as aircraft damage um no absolutely and then yeah the last one i wanted to touch on was just um the fact that again there's been more retirements this week um we've seen i think five um i might be wrong on the exact figure but i believe it was five 747s have flown to kemble in gloucestershire Um, And that's likely going to be their last flight. There's been some debate in the comments on whether the 747 can take off from Kemble. Um, I looked into it and I I think personally it can, but um, I'm not going to put money on that. Um, and I, I because do they're not officially retired, or are they officially retired from the airline's point of view? I think they were already slated to be retired before coronavirus came up, um, and that's probably just um, been the excuse accelerated to accelerated that process. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I did see another interesting story related to that, which we didn't cover, uh, which was that um, I believe it was the local police force was urging people not to go out to see the 747s at oh. Kemble because um, the the road right by the airport was actually getting jammed up with all of these non-essential journeys. Um, well, you would though, wouldn't you? I used to live about 20 minutes from Kemble and I'd have been up there in my car, <laughs> locked down or not, excuse me. <laughs> yeah. um, so, I mean, the, the good news there is that um, the airport did actually stream all of the arrivals on Facebook, I believe. So, uh, you can 
go back and see them. Um, and they looked so pretty because Kemble is just like a, it's like a big meadow really, isn't it? Mm. It's not a, a typically airporty looking airport. It just looks like beautiful Cotswold countryside. And uh, yeah, it just seemed like a lovely place for the, the 747s to be put out to pasture. Yeah. Okay, well, I think that's about all we've got time for today. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. It was great to have your insight. I hope you'll join us again in the future. You'll have to invite me, Joe. <laughs> we'll see what we can do. Well, we hope all our <laughs> listeners enjoyed the podcast. And as usual, we'd welcome any feedback at podcast at simpleflying.com. For more great content, you can visit our website at simpleflying.com or find us on social media. Simply search for Simple Flying. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a rating on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.